Welcome to Wild Quincy, a podcast that looks into the little-known and forgotten past of Quincy, Illinois. If we were to ask you to name a former mayor of Quincy, chances are pretty good that one of those names would be Chuck Schultz. From the flood of 93 and the Baldwin Field airplane crash to the attacks on September 11th, Mayor Schultz dealt with a lot during his time in office. In our first People episode, we sit down and talk with the one and only Chuck Schultz. That coming up next. Now, here's your host, Chris Ketters and Travis Hoffman. Welcome back to this supersized episode of Wild Quincy. Travis, uh, we had a what if last week talking about what if you were buried at Woodland Cemetery, but I have a bigger question for you. Yes, what's your question, Chris? What if you haven't checked out Patreon yet? I can't help you. I can't help you if you haven't taken that step to get twice as much Wild Quincy injected into your veins or at least your ear holes. Uh, yeah, well, a lot of people have, though. There's been a few new people that have jumped on Patreon. We want to give a quick shout-out to Amy A., who's joined us at the $8 Kelly's Salad Bar level, as well as, and this is a big one. This we, we, I'm, I'm impressed here, Chris. We got the, the big guns here. Beth right. Lane at the $8 Kelly's Salad Bar level. If you don't know, Beth Lane is the author of the book of the Fanschmidt murders, Lies Told Under Oath. And so I was ecstatic to see her name pop up on the radar. Welcome aboard, both of you, and we appreciate your support. Everyone else is more than welcome to come check out the Patreon side. You can get twice as many episodes as you hear right now on the regular feed and show your support for Wild Quincy as well. I have a feeling that uh, we talked about this. We're seeing a lot of the Kelly Salad Bar, which is the second level. We appreciate any of the levels, but it kind of makes me wonder if people might be interested in our new Slack channel that we got coming out pretty soon. That's right. That's that's an interesting connection there, Chris. Our Slack channel is a way that you can assist us in researching future episodes and future content. You don't have to be a Patreon member to be a researcher. Uh, give give the rundown. You do this better than I do, Chris. What's oh, well, the, uh, what's sure. the logistics here? So what's going to happen is that if you are a uh, Kelly Salad Bar member or above with our Patreon, you get access to our Slack channel. Uh, you won't necessarily have to worry about researching. You'll get the view of what's going on, what we're looking at, what different subjects are coming up. But also, if you want to be a researcher, we're going to have a research core that uh, is already starting up. we got some people that are interested in being in our research core. So if uh, you are interested in either becoming a Patreon member just to see what's coming up in the future, uh, or if you want to be part of that research core get in touch with us man i'm just connecting the dots here because travis what is a number if they want to contact us by text or phone it's easy chris they just have to dial 612-666-9453 that's 612-666-9453 a voicemail or a text message will do just as good we can uh, shoot you a message back and we, we love to hear your voices it's fun talking into these microphones but every once in a while it's fun hearing some voices coming back at us so that's a great way to get a hold of us and let us know And if you have some really in-depth thoughts about maybe an episode that we did and you just want to call us, it's a voicemail. It's not like you're going to be talking to anybody. It's just a voicemail. You leave a message, and if it's something that maybe we can throw into a future episode or the next episode that kind of looks back uh, at the last episode, we will definitely do that. So uh, maybe to break up the monotonous voice of Travis and Chris, we'll put your voice on instead. Save us some breath there and uh, get your own voice in there. Real quick, though, if you do want to help on the research side, just shoot us an email or a text either way. You can shoot us an email at wildquincy at gmail.com, and we'd love to talk more on how you can uh, be part of this Slack network that's 
coming out pretty quick. It's, we're getting the f- finishing touches on there. We're getting a fresh coat of paint on there. We're getting it all presentable for everyone, Chris. Yeah, it's we're really excited about this. It's definitely going to help us out in our research efforts and uh, bringing you some of these great episodes that we have coming up down the road. Speaking of great episodes, uh, we always do the question of the day, Travis. And uh, this question has to do with an area that I uh, definitely have some interest in. And we're going to talk a little about about tornadoes. Oh, I'm uh, I'm all spun up and ready for it. Oh, nice. So here is the question of the day. The Fujita scale measures the strength of a tornado by the damage it causes. In Adams County, what was the highest Fujita rated tornado? Was it an F1, F2, F3, or F4? Now, just so I'm clear, the the higher the number, the more the damage, right? Right. The bigger okay. the tornado. So. Okay, so say that again on options. Sure. So let me give you the whole thing. Of course, you know what the Fujita scale measures strength of the tornado. In Adams County, what was the highest rated tornado ever reported? Is it mm. F1, F2, F3, or F4? And by the way, I know there's some fans out there. There's some weather enthusiasts that are like, why are you not saying EF4 for enhanced Fujita? Because the enhanced Fujita scale just came out a few years ago. And so it's an actual in the old school Fujita scale. There you go. I get a little techie with you there. So we'll have the question to the answer to that question coming up at the end of this episode. But Travis, we, as I mentioned at the beginning, have a supersized episode, our first people episode of the season. And we're digging in deep with none other. You've heard his name. If you're older than 15 years old, you know the name by heart. He's the former mayor of Quincy. His name's Chuck Schultz. We'll be talking with him next here on Wild Quincy. Hey guys, this is Frankie Cavaletta, host of Haunted Garage, and you're listening to Wild Quincy with Chris Ketters and Travis Hopp. here on Wild Quincy. And uh, Travis, I've been super excited not only to start this new category, but also excited of the idea that we get to have somebody that, as we've said before, has been on our radar to bring in and uh, have on this show. And uh, Travis, I'm going to do the honors. Uh, Former mayor of Quincy, uh, you guys know his name. Uh, We bring in None other than Chuck Schultz. Chuck, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Chris, and I'm looking forward to Wild Quincy. (laughs) Well, thank you. (laughs) Well, we have a ton of questions to get to, and uh, we try keeping this limited. We tell you it's probably going to be a supersized episode because there's just a wealth of information to gather. So, Travis, we're going to jump right in, and I'm going to hand it over to you, and, and let's get this thing started. First off, Chuck, thank you very much. Oh, we really appreciate your time. Have you technically retired ever? No, no, no. I, I'm still practicing along with my son, even though he does do all the work. But <laughs> uh, occasionally clients want to see some gray hair, so I'm available. But, you know, I have a number of uh, opportunities to serve in Quincy on various boards and, and different things that I'm involved with. But uh, my term on the State Board of Elections did end last year so i do have a little bit more uh, little flexibility more schedule wise which is good but no i appreciate you guys having me on and, and i appreciate your podcast to promote quincy well i want to start from the beginning because you know historically chris and i are about the same age and right when we were in high school uh was kind of the the latter part of i mid the late part of, of your term as mayor and you know it, 
for me, like looking back, if, if you look, obviously if you Google you your name, Chuck, you get all kinds of stuff, but you don't see a whole lot about early Chuck Schultz. I want to know about you know the young the before the mayor, before all that, before the the national spotlight <laughs> on the flood. I mean, what was what was life like growing up? I, I don't even know if you're a Quincy native. Oh Chuck. yeah, oh yeah, I'm a Quincy native. My grandkids are ninth generation Quincyans. Wow. Oh, so our ancestors got to Quincy in the 1840s. So uh, yeah, I got some deep roots. My, my son-in-law partner, uh, your contemporary Jake Schultz is fifth generation lawyer. So oh, wow. we've got a lot of family uh, roots and traditions in this community. And I grew up in a great family, my mom and dad. The uh, Children's Library, Quincy Public Library is named for my mom and dad. My dad was the longest serving <laughs> trustee uh, ever on the Quincy Public Library. My mom was very involved uh, with a lot of the history stuff with the uh, Illinois room and so forth. But anyway, they valued education. So there were seven of us. I've got a brother and five sisters. And between the seven of us, I don't know, we got, you know, 16 or 18 degrees. Uh, Education was always paramount. And uh, my brother and I just have the law degree, so everybody else has got all these other exotic ones. But uh, right. uh, I grew, I went to St. Peter's. I, I walked to school back in those days. We walked home for lunch uh, wow. before they started the free lunch program. But I got a great education from the uh, sisters at St. Peter's, most precious blood. And then I went to Christian Brothers, and uh, we had wonderful brothers to instruct us. And a big part of that was learning about the value of service to your community. And, you know, I'm growing up in the 60s in Quincy, late 50s. John F. Kennedy was elected president on my seventh birthday. Hmm. So here I am, a Catholic kid, a Democratic kid. My dad knew JFK. So, you know, that whole call to service in the early 60s. At the same time, I'm a Catholic kid. And we got Vatican too. I started out serving mass in latin you know mm-hmm. back to the congregation and went through the whole thing of mass in english face the congregation you know the laity should get involved in the call to action and so forth so uh, and then into the later 60s of course i wanted to you know i was a little bit radical myself um uh, and the brothers encouraged that uh at the moratorium really? the vietnam war of 1968 uh I read the names of the war dead on the steps of Brenner Library at Quincy University. I was a uh, 16 year old junior, maybe at Christian Brothers. But, uh, you know, I told Brother Pius, principal, about myself and a couple other guys were planning on doing it. He said, fine, uh, go exercise your First Amendment rights. <laughs> so, you know, that was the late 60s. Uh, sure. But anyway, I got a great education. And I know guys that you, Brother Pius, the principal, taught a constitutional law class in high school and people use those notes in law school. Oh, uh, wow. I probably would have too, if I had taken them, you know, <laughs> uh, but anyway, a lot going on in the I world. On, I was interested obviously in politics and government. My family had been involved in public service and uh, I went to the best place in America uh, for somebody like me. And that's Georgetown university in Washington, DC, which has unlimited opportunities. And this is back, you know, I was uh, I was there when they were holding signs in front of the White House saying haunt for impeachment. That's back <laughs> in the days when you could actually drive in front of the White House wow. and and bus drivers and cab drivers were all honking, you know, and 
That was the the Watergate days. Water, right? We went. I rode the bus down to Capitol Hill and went into the uh, Russell Senate Office Building, into the caucus room, and waited at my turn. And got I I was in that room for the uh, Watergate hearings. Wow. Uh, yeah, no, I had a lot, it, it was very interesting. I did an internship with uh, Senator Adley Stevenson and, and with the Democratic National Committee. So I, I got a great education there. And a lot of it was off campus, you know, uh, but it was, all, <laughs> it, was a, it was a great place to go to college and a lot of interesting classmates from around the country. And, uh, you know, uh, I became friends with Teddy Roosevelt's great grandson, and you know, oh people that... Uh, uh, their families had been involved uh, nationally for for many generations. So it was, you know, there's always a lot of networking that goes on, uh, especially I think in Catholic schools. So uh, then I graduated. I decided to go to law school. My father had been sent to Mercer University during World War II in the Navy V12 program, and then after the war, after he graduated from University of Illinois, he went down there for law school because he loved it down there. And then my uncle who was chief judge of our circuit for many years. He went to law school down there as well, my brother, my cousin. So anyway, I ended up down there for law school and loved Georgia. My brothers and sisters, I still share a place down in Georgia. Uh, so I had a great experience there. Came back to work, go work for the best lawyer I ever knew in my life, my dad. Uh, but, you know, I, I wanted, I was itching to get involved in politics and public service and in see i came back in 78 becky and i got married bought a house the whole thing but by 81 my friend tony cameron had been elected state's attorney and he hired me as an assistant state's attorney prosecutor and because you get a lot more experience in court right state's attorney's office than you would in a private law firm and then two years later neil hardigan had just been elected attorney general and he had pledged to take the office out into the state and the first office was going to be in what used to be known as Forgottonia, Quincy, Illinois. And so he right. created this regional office and appointed me as the director. So I got to be attorney general for 10 counties in West Illinois. And that was wow. a great job for me because if something, you know, we had like uh, environmental issues in Warsaw to barge dock. Well, I'd get the best environmental lawyers out of Chicago to come down here. I'd be the local guy, you know, I know the other lawyers, I know the judges, I can argue it, but they got to do all the painstaking research and try out the pleadings. <laughs> and so, you know, we did the same thing like uh, consumer stuff. We had this dynasty. Uh, it was a multi-level marketing, but really it turned out to be a pyramid scam. Uh, and they gave us the backup, took over Quincy Nursing Home when those poor people out there were getting exploited. So it was wonderful to always have those kinds of opportunities available uh when i could draw the resources of the office from springfield in chicago and i i really loved being an assistant attorney general but in 1989 paul simon who was our united states senator and who i had volunteered with the year before when he ran for president in 1988 and i helped him in 1984 when he ran for senate but he known my dad my uncles he, he was an old family friend and he he asked me to be his downstate political director in 1990 when he was up for re-election. And if you'd asked me as a kid what I wanted to do when I grow up, I, I would have said, you know, work for Paul Simon. Uh, <laughs> as I look back on my career, I uh, he, he was the best. I mean, he was everybody. And I've worked with a lot of people in politics and they've been great people. But, you know, at some point you want to kind of let the hair down and 
put your feet up. And, and, but with Paul, it was, I mean, I was with him from 6 a.m. to midnight. What you see is what you get. It's just pure, honest, hardworking, sincere public service, just trying to do the right thing. What a great guy. I had the pleasure of meeting Paul when I was about four years old, I think. I was at the Adams County Fair with my dad, who ran a field tiling business. And I'm sure Paul was you know, pressing the, the flesh. <laughs> oh, and, and he talked to my dad for a while. And all I could do was stare at that bow tie. And I had so many questions about that bow tie when we were done. But what, what comes to mind to me is, obviously, I mean, the, the bow tie was so iconic, it and, absolutely was his ID. And, and, you know, again, it was just Paul. That's just the way he dressed. But I can only think of three times. I've collected political buttons over the years, like a lot of people yeah. that are involved in politics. And there's three buttons I have that don't have the candidate's name on there. But everybody knows who it is. One is a lapel pin that's a peanut. For Jimmy oh, Carter. Yeah, yep. Jimmy yep. Carter, yeah. One is a lapel pin that is a bow tie for Paul Simon. <laughs> and the other one is the first time I ran for mayor, my brother, who's talented artistically, did this. It was just hair, glasses, and beard. Oh, cool. Against the white background. Like a silhouette. You do thing. have an iconic look of yourself. You've kind of so developed over the time. He made those into buttons. It was a round white button. <laughs> with the hair, glasses, and beard on it. And it didn't didn't say anything. It didn't say Schultz for mayor. (laughs) But anyway, uh, they went went like hotcakes. I might be still find a few. But uh, anyway, yeah, Paul Simon, he was was just one of a kind. And, uh, you know, uh, I could tell so many stories about Paul. But the, the, the one story I would tell all your listeners is, he and I are in the offices of Doak and Shrum out in uh, Georgetown in Washington. And Doak and Shrum were the top Democratic political consultants. They were supposed to be the smart guys. Although this is 1990. They were just coming off being uh, Dukakis's guy in 88. And before that, they were Mondale's guys in 84. So the, the right. track record wasn't brilliant. But anyway, <laughs> this is going to be a big national campaign because back in 1990, Illinois is a swing state. So it was going to be a target by both sides. And of course, nowadays that we have these oligarch billionaires funding these campaigns, you know, it doesn't sound like a lot of money, but it was a $10 million campaign. It was huge back in 1990. I did a lot of fundraising and a lot of that was going to be TV ads. And that's what this Doak and Trump did. So we're Paul and I are on one side of the table, Doak and Trump on the other side. And David Doak is kind of condescendingly lecturing to Paul that this uh, bill the Republicans have introduced to outlaw flag burning is just designed to get Paul to vote against it so they can then run a 30-second ad about, you know, Paul Simon hates the American flag or whatever. Oh, wow. And so they said, you know, you can't can't vote against that because that's just what they want you to do. And Paul, who served in the army, loved America, loved the flag, teared up the national anthem, whatever, he strongly believed, hey, this isn't Tiananmen Square. You know, you can burn a flag. That's it's Mm -hmm. abhorrent to him. But that is a symbolic public speech that is allowed. This is America, First Amendment. So uh, while they're lecturing about, you know, you can't fall into this trap and and vote against that. He looks at these two guys and he says, gentlemen. If I lose my seat in the United States Senate, 
defending the First Amendment to the Constitution, I will never lose a night's sleep over it. I'm perfectly yeah. prepared to accept that. And this was, no one's around, you know, the press isn't there. Yeah. There's, there's not a crowd to talk to. And I'm thinking, wow, you know, maybe he's one in a million, but he is the real deal. And again, I'm still so proud of uh, uh, my work with him. And I learned so much with Paul. And so I, we, we, and that was a heck of a campaign. Lynn Martin was our opponent. She was the congresswoman from Rockford, Illinois, who later served as Secretary of Labor under uh, George H.W. Bush. But her her campaign manager was a guy named Roger Ailes. So this is 1990. This is six years before Fox News was started. Interesting. Yeah. If, if you watch the uh, Roger Ailes movie, uh, they make reference to this 1990 campaign and... Uh, yeah, it's very interesting. But anyway, I learned a lot about government politics. And, you know, half your your anecdote, Travis, about the county fair, he loved to go to county fairs. And he was so good at it. You know, he's not only this statesman that's going to vote his conscience, but he's a real good retail politician. First place we would always go would be the Republican booth at that county fair. And he'd just <laughs> disarm them all. And, just <laughs> and then he'd go to the Democratic booth, and then he'd go around and he loved the, the, you know, a lot of it was really corny, but he loved the 4-H and, and, and he loved the state fair, too. And the thing about Paul, he had started out in the early 50s. So this is 1990. He'd been everywhere. So, you know, uh, they always talk about Kevin Bacon, six degrees of separation. This guy had like one or two degrees. Math. <laughs> because, you know, he, 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 he and one of the reasons he had such a great memory for people, he focused on the person he was meeting. So he said, Travis, where are you from? You know, where, oh, you don't know where you've never heard of Root. Oh, I've been to Root House. Is, you know, <laughs> Joe Smith still the editor of the paper there? I spoke at the high school commencement there, you know, and just take off. You know, it's like when we would be on the road, I, I'd be in the driving and we'd stop to get gas or whatever. I'd say, Paul, he, his big treat of the day would be an ice cold Pepsi. And uh, I'd say, can I get you? No, I want to go in and get the Pepsi because then he could talk to everybody. Let me ask you this question real quick, because th this brings up actually a really good point about this. That's the way it felt like it was more so back in maybe the 90s and 80s that yeah. there, you had that more one-on-one -on -one contact when you're running for office. It, it, has that disappeared a little bit in oh, more recently? Chris, I'm so concerned about that. I mean, when, when I think of a guy like Alan J. Dixon, who was a great senator, great guy, uh, good public servant. He started out as police magistrate in Belleville. Then he got elected state rep. Then he got elected state senate. Then he got elected state treasurer. From state treasurer, he got elected secretary of state. And then he went to the United States Senate and knew every county in Illinois and knew what the issues were. And, you know, talk about camp. I can tell you some great Dixon stories. Wonderful campaigner. But in any event, contrast that with Rauner or Pritzker, who just bought in. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they just bought it. And, mm -hmm. you know, they're tempting. Ken Griffin's trying to buy it for uh, Richard Irvin right now. And, and Pritzker's trying to match him dollar for dollar. It's obscene. You know, if you, I, I hate to go big, big picture here, but you look at how it happens. I think that you don't get that, uh, that loyalty to the elected no. official when you don't feel like you have that personal connection to them anymore. No, and they're not loyal. You know, yeah. uh, it's not, they don't, they didn't go through that process of, you know, spending some time in somebody's garage, uh, silkscreen and yard signs or something, mm -hmm. you know, and knocking right. on doors and, 
and helping another candidate, and then they help you in building coalitions and uh, achieving a consensus and so forth. No, they just bought enough ads to win. Yeah. And uh, that that has to be addressed at some point. And of course, the ads are Yeah, it's not, it's not kissing babies anymore. Now it's making posts on Twitter. It's kissing <laughs> other other things, it sounds like. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, one of the things that, that uh, if I look back and things have changed so much and not for the good, uh, after the 2020 November election, and I'd like to spend some time talking about that because probably one of my proudest achievements in government, I was chairman of the Board of Elections that year. So we were under huge security concerns and we had a pandemic to conduct an election mm-hmm. in. Right. And on a bipartisan basis, the agency functioned wonderfully with a lot of help from other state agencies, including uh, the Illinois National Guard. You know, the National Guard has 13,000 men and women that are guarding our state. One of the ways they do that, 135 of them are cybersecurity specialists. Huh. So we could deploy them anywhere in the state of Illinois. You know, God yeah. love them down in Calvin County where you got, you know, maybe a county clerk and one assistant. But yeah. you don't have any IT person, you know. <laughs> yeah. You could boom. But the uh, the guard can come in and and, and address whatever situation presents itself. Uh, and, it, and it really it uh, it went very well. And and primarily because you know we uh, we really pushed the early voting and the vote by mail. So we had over six million people vote, but mm. like two point two million voted early. Two point two million voted by mail, and then on election day. With pandemic restrictions, you could handle the rest of it. So, right, uh, yeah. but anyway, I'm talking local politics now. So, 2020, my good friend Richard J. Durbin's up for re-election, gets pummeled here in Adams County, loses two to one in Adams County, like 70-30. And uh, we had a chance to talk about that a week or so afterwards, and. Uh, I got to looking at some previous results and and because here's the thing about Durbin's race in 2020 ran against the guy that never came to Adams County, never spent a penny, never did anything. Just put his name on the ballot because everybody knew Durbin was going to win. He wasn't going to win around here, but you know, statewide. So uh, I went back and I looked and in 2002, he ran against uh, Jim Durkin, who's the Republican leader of the Illinois general assembly, formidable guy who ran a good campaign, you know, uh, advertised campaign came to Adams County. Durbin beat him two to one in Adams County because he was always great for Adams County, for the airport, for uh, Amtrak, for John Wood, whatever uh, the issue was. So he wins two to one. Now, 20 years later, and he's still delivering for us, just got us $33 million to save Quincy Bay, which was right at the edge. I mean, that's the, there's islands forming out there in the bay right. if we don't mm-hmm. save it. So anyway, he still delivers for Western Illinois, but he loses now two to one. So what's happened in 20 years? Mm -hmm. And what I think has happened is social media. Hmm. In 2002, you still got your news from credible journalists. And you might not have liked what they told you, but you believed it. Well, you know, because as a lawyer, I always tell people, you know, everybody's entitled to their own opinion, but you're not entitled to your own facts. Well, Nowadays, apparently, people think they're entitled to their own facts because somewhere on the Internet, they can find whatever it is they want to hear. And uh, obviously, there's been a ton of nonsense out there. And I don't do social media, so I'm I'm sure much more mentally healthy than otherwise. Uh, Yeah. 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 
but sometimes it gets so bad that you know my son say dad you gotta look at this or whatever <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's it's unfortunate of how how that shift has happened but chuck another question i had for you i want to go back so we're, we're let's talk early 90s before you get into uh running for mayor did anybody has has anybody or did anybody before you and your family had they ever ran for offices uh, politically well my my dad was very active uh with uh senator paul douglas who uh served the united states senate up until 1966 and was the mentor to paul simon and to dick Durbin. uh hmm. And he was also real involved. Uh, he was assistant attorney general under uh, Attorney General Clark, Bill Clark, who went on to become chief justice of the Illinois Supreme Court. So he was always involved. My uncle uh, was the chief judge of the Eighth Circuit and, and ran, was elected circuit-wide in all eight counties in 1964, which was a big year for the Democrats. That was LBJ and uh, Governor Kerner and uh, what they called the bedsheet ballot because they reorganized the General Assembly and uh, they everybody statewide had to run. It was crazy. They also mm. did the judicial system and that was uh, when, prior to that, my uncle had been elected county judge, but this was over the uh, eighth judicial circuit. So yeah, politics goes way back. My grandfather, uh, and beyond that, I had a great grandfather who was state's attorney of Knox County, Missouri. You obviously had a lot of uh, of exposure, if you will, to a state level, a state level politics. What was the determining factor of running for mayor? Well, that's a great question, Chris. And the and the answer is, mayor allowed me the opportunity to serve on a significant level, get things done. Uh, and and you know, I spent a lot of time in Springfield and Chicago and Washington as well. And I thought, you know, to be effective. I had all those contacts. I had to utilize them, but I could do that and I could still be home every night to help with home or watch my boys play golf in high school. I, I didn't miss many matches, you know, uh, my assistant that I work with at city hall, John Osh, like she knew, you know, when that schedule came out, certain things got blocked out <laughs> and that's because Charles and Jake were playing. Uh, so, and I, Oh my gosh, you know, of all the fun I had during mayor, they won, two state championships in golf. So uh, right. yeah, was that, that. a conference championship in college. So anyway, uh, yeah, I, the mayor thing allowed me, cause I did, I had people, you know, after the flood urged me to, to run for mm -hmm. higher office that would have involved being in Washington, uh, in Congress, you know, and you have to run every two years and you have to raise all the money. And it's kind of like, you know, you can do one or the other. You can either yeah. have that, a lifestyle of two homes and back and forth and constantly running uh or you can have a stable family life yeah and i'm so fortunate you know i have a great uh wife who's been my partner for 50 years and and uh she's done such a great job with our kids and now i have all five of my grandkids are, are here in quincy so i'm just That's really cool. blessed well and i'm going to throw back travis travis got 10 more questions but i'll finish that off and you kind of mentioned it already is is it sounds like especially at a federal level is is and, and maybe tell me if I'm wrong, but it almost feels like as soon as you get elected, you're working to get reelected and you, and you don't get what you had when you were running for mayor, where you were getting the time to focus on actually doing something. Right. Is, does that a correct ass assessment? I, I absolutely. And, you know, if I had a tough day as mayor, I could drive by a house that, you know, maybe was an old abandoned property we'd torn down and 
filed a city lien and, and given it to Habitat for Humanity. And now there's a nice house there and a family and a stronger block. You know, you could see things that you actually accomplished. Uh, and, and that's not true uh, in legislative positions at all. Uh, yeah. And it's just a lifestyle thing. But at the same time, you know, I'm very interested in. So I took an active role through Conference of Mayors and League of Cities. And, uh, you know, obviously uh, for somebody, you know, I love being able to I've been to State of the Union speeches. Uh, mm. I've been to the national political conventions. I've been to inaugurations, you know, so uh, I've been able to get around all that uh, and uh, be exposed to it and yet still maintain quality of life in Quincy. So I'm a lucky guy. All right. I'm going to throw you a curveball here, Chuck. All right. If you had to create a slogan, we've talked about how much marketing goes into politics these days. If, if we can take take that with a grain of salt, how, how what would your slogan have been from your your time as mayor if you had to sum it down to a slogan I, i'm curious what, what that would be for you well i would hope it'd be something along the lines of forward together because you know i wanted to be progressive and we needed to move forward but obviously when everybody's pulling in the same direction it makes a heck of a difference and uh the serendipity for me travis was it all happened during the flood. You know, I, I took office in May of 93 in June, all of a sudden we're facing the greatest natural disaster in the history of the upper Midwest and people just pulled together and it was incredible. And, uh, you know, I went on TV and said, Hey, uh, we're asking for volunteers to come out to 18th and Sycamore to the Quincy University parking, the stadium parking lot. I was, I was there. Yeah. I was there. Well, I mean, you know what happened out there? It was incredible. Yeah. I called Kenny Cantrell, who was our streets uh, superintendent, and I said, how many sandbags you got? And he said, oh, I, I got about 10,000. And then he said, you think that's enough? And I said, he says, well, yeah. I said, I want to take some out there and ask for volunteers. He says, well, how about if I send 5,000 out there and then I'll keep 5,000 for the water treatment plant? I said, great, that 5,000 sandbags. We got that thing going, rocking out there. They were bringing in 100,000 sandbags at a time on the Chinook helicopters and dropping them down there. We had 16 trucks from IDOT that were 14 tons each going down to Fall Creek to get more sand. It was like an hour round trip. They'd come in. They dumped these mountains of sand and mom and dad, you know, mom's holding the bag, yeah. and junior, you know, it was just wonderful. And I was one of the little guys probably getting in the way more than actually doing well, it. Yeah, but I saw kids with wagons taking water and sandwiches around. We had old folks right. making uh, food. It was, you know, it just worked out. It, uh, it was extremely efficient. I mean, we, we made millions of sandbags. So, so they dumped that sand and go down to Fall Creek. By the time they came back, people are banging their shovels, wanting more sand. It, it was incredible. So we sent them all, you know, primarily to keep the levee up in West Quincy, but also we sent it north to Iota and south to Pleasant Hill. We sent some over even to the Illinois River because we had them. We, these people were incredible. And of course, the wonderful thing over the years was number one, it pulled everybody together. Secondly, we had all the satellite trucks from all the, you know, ABC, CBSC, and, mm -hmm. and, and what are they depicting? Town pulls together to keep their bridge open to help their friends and neighbors. Because as I always remind yeah. people, you know, these people aren't making sandbags. Travis sitting out there to sell, save his own house. Mm -hmm. Right. We all live up here 100 feet on a limestone bluff. Uh, they're just trying to do the right thing to help people. And there were so many examples of that. But that got portrayed nationally in the media. 
And that was really a point of reference for many times over the years when I would meet with people on economic development matters and say, Quincy, they would, that was their point of reference. And, oh, we remember Quincy and the flood. And of course, I'd say, that's why you ought to locate in Quincy. That's your workforce dedicated to dependable people. Yeah. Because, you know, I, uh, I, I recently uh, made a little speech about public service. And I mentioned, I have a good friend who's a retired professor of sociology over in Germany. And he studies disasters. And he always reminds me, not everybody responds the way the people in this region did. You know, there's a lot of places where it's looting and, uh, oh yeah, yeah. you know, people are hoarding whatever's needed and it's just every man for himself and not the type of thing of, you know, I was going around at that sandbag site and thank people for coming out. And they're like, oh no, thank you. We wanted to do something. You know, we couldn't go out wow. on a levee or something, but we wanted to do something. And it did kind of revolutionize the way we fought floods because in the past we had gone out on the levee this central site to manufacture the bags and then ship them out in these dump trucks was uh, really much more effective. And I really believe we would have held West Quincy had it not been for this you know, deranged psychopath that, right. that uh, sabotaged it. I'm curious about you. You spoke to, you spoke to the fact that we Quincy and yourself as well were kind of propelled into the national media spotlight. I have, I have to kind of contrast you know, how, Depending on what media you're watching, how media affects things, I don't know if if it would. Did the media presence ever serve as a hurdle, or was it pretty much all effective for the reputation for Quincy? Was there any downside to that media? Well, there was the occasional uh, screw up. You know, CNN uh, reported we'd lost our water system, which we never did. In fact, we've supplied water. We sent water out up into Iowa where they had lost their water treatment. But uh, generally speaking, it was very good, very positive. I just saw Harry Smith this morning on, uh, he's now on NBC's morning show. But yeah. uh, he was a great example of guys that took the time. He was here probably for a week. He at night operated out of uh, Channel 7, was in the WC building at that time, cutting up his stories. Uh, but he, he did some in-depth. I took him down to Gardner, Denver, and explained that whole situation, how, you know, had we lost this 100-year-old plant, it, at that time, they were owned out of uh, Houston, Texas, and, you know, it was doubtful if we would have had them build back. But uh, we actually called out the off-duty ships of firefighters and said, report to the guardhouse in Gardner, Denver, and we're not going to lose it. And, and we did. It was a Herculean effort. But uh, thank God that FEMA reimbursed us for that. Those off-duty firefighters, you know, when it's like a five alarm. Those are, that's about 50 bucks an hour. Building off that, I think you really struck on something. I mean, I've heard this phrase attributed to you many times, Chuck, and that's the Mississippi River doesn't really separate us. It brings us together. And it feels like that, I mean, right out of the gate, everything with the flood and the fighting. I believe at one point you sent people over to the Missouri side, didn't you? Yeah. Uh, and L actually Quincy the, funds, right? The night that uh, the levee broke July 16th uh, at 822 PM was when the levee was breached. We actually had uh, about five trucks on that side of the river because, you know, we were mainly supplying sandbags for the Fabius over there. Uh, and we had told our guys, if the levee breaks, don't try to come back across uh, the bridge. You know, Memorial had been closed and uh, 
the only bridge up was Bayview. And we said, you know, just, just go West, you know, we'll get you back somehow. Well, four out of five of them did went, went back through St. Louis. Uh, Cause we were the only bridge from St. Louis to Burlington, 200 miles of Mississippi. So, but we did have one guy, he came back anyway. And uh, thank God he made it. And, you know, they had to rescue somebody. Now it's uh, an overpass, but it used to be an underpass with the railroad there. And a semi got stuck in there. Uh, we also picked up when we finally got everybody back and one guy ended up, his truck broke down. We flew him back from St. Louis. We had a volunteer pilot. But when we finally counted heads, we actually had one extra. And it was this guy who'd driven up here from Arkansas, saw what was happening on TV, volunteering out on the levee, had his truck and all his possessions in the Napai parking lot and lost it all. Oh and uh, he had jumped on the city truck and came back across. And so uh, I took him out to North Campus at QU, where the Red Cross had a shelter. And Kenny Cantrell hired him uh, to work. And he worked for the city for almost a year. He saved up enough money to to get another truck and to go back to Arkansas. And that was his nickname. We all called him Arkansas. Uh, <laughs> kind of a hero of the flood yeah Uh, so since we're on the flood subject and i you know when we talk about like september 11th you remember that moment when you heard about what happened september 11th yeah so let's let's go to the night of the flood do you remember where you were at and what was going on when you heard that the levee broke absolutely absolutely and you could see it you know you could see when the fuel tanks exploded um so most of that night was at City Hall. Uh, Art Tenhouse was there. Lane Evans, our congressman, was there. Um, we, uh, I had uh, worked, as we mentioned earlier, for Paul Simon. So I was able to call Senator Simon, and uh, I woke him up. But thank God he answered his cell phone in the middle of the night. And he used to serve in the House before he was elected to the Senate. He served in the House with Les Aspen, who was a congressman from Wisconsin. But uh, was now serving the Secretary of Defense under President Clinton. So he calls up the Secretary of Defense and says, hey, they need help in Quincy. They just, well, you know, the only bridge for 200 miles over the river. And there, because uh, uh, at that point, we really weren't in contact with the National Guard. So uh, we're sitting in my office at City Hall, and we hear the old helicopter coming in, landing in the parking lot. And here comes this Major General with about, four guys on each side of him. And I'm like, oh, General, hey, great. Thanks for coming because we're in the middle of this crisis. And he was just, you could tell, he was just very upset. And, you know, I'm trying, he wants some coffee, you know, we're all going to figure this out. And he finally lets, listen, uh, I said, you, you know, you're, you're obviously, you know, got an issue here. Well, let's, let's hear it. And he said, well, all I know is some SOB named Sparks who is, Gary Sparks, who was director of administrative services with me at the city, you know, he, I, he was the flood guy. Mm-hmm. I said, yes, yeah, Sparks. He said, yeah, some guy named Sparks woke up the secretary of defense and I got my butt chewed out, uh, up one side, down the other. And Sparky jumps up, you know, had a pretty impressive vertical leap. As I recall, he said, I didn't wake him up. <laughs> and, uh, I said, well, Hey, that's my fault, but you know, we need, we need help. Okay. So, uh, anyway, he turned out to be great. We had a great relationship. Uh, Donald W. Lynn, in fact, he came back and served as uh, director of the Illinois Veterans Home years later. Uh, oh, wow. 
real good guy. But at that night, we initially did not hit it off too well. But uh, yeah, I remember that night vividly. Uh, it, you know, it was a Friday night and we were trying to figure out what can we do by Monday to get this thing open. Uh, you know, we knew we weren't going to, they told us that now the fab is, it's going to be a couple of months before it drains out. Hannibal, they couldn't mess with, but they thought at uh, Keokuk, they could just dump, uh, put some, some big culverts, dump rock on top of the approach and see if they could, you know, but, and, and eventually that worked, but it was like one lane and there are all these tributaries. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, yeah, it just that wasn't going to happen. So we went, we hit on the idea of the boat shuttle. Bob Lump, who was the guy that at that time ran the riverboat in Hannibal, was licensed to transport passengers on the river. And in those days, the National the Coast Guard worked for the Secretary of Transportation, Federico Pena, former mayor of uh, Denver, who'd been to Quincy during the flood. I had his contact, he was very helpful. So we were going to, he, Bob Lump he found out he could get these big pontoons from Florida. And uh, I said, let's go for it. So we get everybody to sign off, uh, MoDOT, IDOT, Coast Guard, but not the Corps of Engineers, hmm. because the Corps of Engineers is notoriously bureaucratic and they want to do a study. And I'm like, no, you know, we got to yeah. do this now. We got people that have to get across right. the river. So I called Paul Simon again. And uh, Paul said, you know, I, I said, we just got to get it expedited. Somebody's got to tell whoever it is at the core. And he said, well, you know what? I'm in Chicago and President Clinton's making a speech here today. And I'm hope, hoping to ride back with him on Air Force One. So maybe I could speak to him, but I certainly can speak to one of his senior staff. And I said, that would be great, Paul. So that was that was like in the middle of the day. So that night we're out at the sandbag site making sandbags. And we get home about 11 o'clock. And in those days, you guys are so young, you barely remember answering machines. <laughs> oh, yeah, we remember them. <laughs> we hit the answering machine. And, you know, Jake's soccer games canceled, more rain. And there's a couple other generics. And then there's this. This is the White House Secure Voice phone operator calling for Mayor Schultz. The president wishes to speak with you immediately. And I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe it. I missed, you know. And, and then there's another couple more calls on there. And then there's this is the White House Security Point Harper calling back to Mayor Schultz and, you know, please return this call. So obviously I did. I'm standing at the dining room table. The boys are all around at Becky and uh, it's like midnight. And uh, I get this woman on the phone. She said, what's your access code? And I said, ma'am, I don't have an access code, but I am returning the president's call. And, and you know, clearly she didn't believe me. <laughs> and uh I was explaining, you know, maybe you've seen the news. There's this natural disaster and, and she's not buying it. So I said, please bear with me, but I'm going to play my answering machine for you. And so she heard about Jake's soccer game. But when she got to that White House, <laughs> she changed her tune immediately. And I got the, you know, hold on. And I got this uh, Air Force One, please hold for the present. And next thing I know, it's you know, Mayor, she got Robert, you know, it's Clinton. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, fortunately, I had my uh, my notes from talking to Paul earlier in the day, and I pulled them out and I went through, you know, and, I, and he said, well, don't worry, we're going to help you. And I said, well, thank you so much. I, I basically trying to get out of the way and get off the phone. And he says, well, don't don't hang up. Your buddy here wants to talk to you. And I got Paul's had a very distinct, deep breath. Yeah. 
He said, Chalk? And I said, yes, Paul. He said, did I get to that time? And I said, what do you mean, Paul? He said, does that guy do the best Bill Clinton imitation you've ever heard? Said, oh, my God, please, don't tell me. He said, no, that's the president. He's going to help you. So wow. oh, next great. morning at like 7 a.m., Sparky is knocking on my door saying, we got to go to a meeting. I said, well, I thought we had a meeting like at 8 with uh, – the uh, Moda, and he said, "No, no, no, it's all been changed." So we go out on North Twenty Fourth Street, where the radio stations are, just north of Broadway. And the core, there are probably twenty core guys in there we didn't know about. You know, and they're engineers, uh, so they're in civilian. You know, they got the pen caddies, your typical. Not to direct, we all need engineers. But anyway, there's one guy in there that's in combat fatigues with the name stenciled, and uh, and this guy's totally in command. And I wish I knew the story of from when I hung up with Clinton at midnight till 7 a.m. Central. Here's this guy in this office. And he's like, Mayor, give me one name, one cell phone. We only had like three. So we had these bag phones. You know. That right. was it for the whole county. Uh, he said, and tell me where you want to stage it. And I said, OK, Gary Sparks, Sparky, give him the bag phone. And we want to do it front in Hampshire. And we'll pick him up in our city buses and take him to work. And I said, well, how long is it going to take to set this up? And he said, well, we probably can't start today, but I guarantee we can start tomorrow. And I said, that yeah. is awesome. And Becky and I wrote it that first day. And people wrote it for 71 days uh, from uh, the highway in uh, Highway 61 in, in uh, Taylor, Missouri, to uh, Quincy, Illinois. came right through the break in the levee created by the uh, – so I think you bring up a, a, another interesting point, and, and we're gonna we haven't done a uh, flood of '93 episode yet, but that's in that's in the to do list for sure. But one of the things I kind of want to hit up real quick uh, to talk about is is obviously we know a lot of people go from Missouri to Illinois and vice versa to work, and, and Quincy is obviously a feeder city. How much of a change did the city of Quincy see when that levee broke from just the work? being done in a normal operation. There's a number of different ways to measure the impact, but certainly retail sales because we're the hub. And uh, obviously uh, workforce, I think it's around 38% comes across the bridge every day. And uh, and obviously here's a a good perspective on it. So we're closed for 71 days. We're finally go back to West Quincy, have another volunteer sandbag site, line the sides of the road with sandbags and put some pea gravel over it and, and some plastic. And then they pumped out the roadway because it's October by now and we got to get the soybeans to the soybean plant. Oh, so yeah. It was eerie because you could actually, there was still, you know, you can't pump all the water off. There's a few inches. And so you're yeah. really, you're driving and then there's the bags on the side in the water. It's like being in the Netherlands or something. It's there's actually water higher than the roadway. But anyway, so I go over there because we're going to roll the barricades back and welcome the first people back to Quincy. And it's a station wagon family. And so I give my key to the city, you know, and I said, just out of curiosity, where are you going? They said, well, we, you know, we got to go grocery shop. We're going to County Market. We have been, you know, because just the smaller stores on that side of the river, it was, yeah, it you know, they were looking for some bargains. And they, and I said, okay. And, and, and then they all chimed in and then we're going to gem city pizza. <laughs> Priorities. Priorities. I don't ride yeah. that. They two months without gem city pizza. And you know, whenever you go in there, 
everybody in there's from Northeast Missouri or something. You know, uh, uh, well, I'm one uh, of them. <laughs> the McLean brothers, and tell you that little place built them all. That, that's that's been a great place. When it comes anyway. to Jim City, you 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 have a limit. You you can only go so long before yeah. you have to go back, and and that was way past <laughs> that limit, I'm sure. Right. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. Well, you've hit on the flood, which was obviously a huge. I mean. Talk about a trial by fire. I mean, I guess quite the opposite technically. But the whole idea of of coming together, that whole regionalism itself seemed to be a continuing mantra of, of not just your mayorship, but also your, your public service beyond. How do you feel like the communities kind of, you know, between Missouri, Hannibal, Palmyra, Quincy, how do you feel like uh, they've come together? What benefit? Well, as, as created by doing so, I it, I appreciate you bringing the point up, Travis, because I am a firm believer that what's good for Palmyra is going to be good for Quincy. And, you know, we had those discussions after the flood because of the relocation of the Napi plant. And, uh, you know, I, I was dealing with some great people across the river, but I said, look, you know, you can give them free land and whatever else, but nobody's probably going to change where they live right now or where they shop right now or where their kids go to school. So mm-hmm. uh, let's try to do something that's a, a net gain for the entire region. And that's why I was recently disturbed. You know, this Quincy calling campaign was sold as General Motors is closing their plant in Lordstown, Ohio. We'll geofence those people and say move to Quincy and, and you know, be a machinist to Napa. Great all in favor of it. And, if, you know, if it takes a financial incentive, that makes sense. But instead they hired some firm that puts up uh, billboards in Palmyra and Hannibal and Keokuk mm-hmm. and Macomb. And I am friends with the mayor of Macomb and I work closely mm-hmm. with the Hannibal economic development director. And uh, these, you know, they're, they're all committed to regionalism. And yes. then we had this, so uh, they, you know, they handled on, they had a meeting with, um, our mayor and economic development people, and I think they rectified that situation because that's not the way uh, when we did the strategic plan for Quincy, that that was not the intent of, of those incentives. So I'm I, I very excited now that Culver Stockton is going to take the Tri-State Summit and really take it to a whole nother level, uh, thanks to the generosity of Tom Oakley, who's uh, given a million dollar gift to get it uh, off the ground. It's going to be great. And that summit, we can be so much more effective on these river issues, particularly, but on all the issues that we have together, you know, whether it's healthcare, education, housing, uh, we can speak to six senators. We have a whole Mississippi River caucus in the House of Representatives. So once we know, uh, come to a consensus on our agenda, which we have with the improvement of the river navigation system and, and so forth, uh, we can be much more effective speaking with one voice. What was your your worst day as, as mayor, if you had to pick something. November 19th, 1996 at 5.02 p.m., a uh, United Express mm. commuter flight with uh, 10 people and two pilots. And then there were two people in this little plane that apparently, you know, the uh, we had we had the worst fatality in the history quincy right. 14 uh, people perished out there and you know i i was in a meeting in the basement of the wcu building on uh, recruitment of adoptive families of foster families 
and uh well that whole ride to the airport was and it was of course was worse once i got there um and it was it was 72 hours of ntsb and grieving families you know no one was from quincy Mm -hmm, right so it was about a three-day process of people arriving from all over the country thank god for the salvation army one of my first calls was to Major Herb Fuquay, who was our, our Salvation Army officer back in those days. And he he never left. He never left the air terminal. We set up a, in the conference room downstairs, and he was there for 72 hours. And, and, we, and it was like the people during the flood. When I got, when we finished up out there, finally, we had a temporary morgue. We had oh, just, you can't imagine how horrific it was. But I said, Herb, thank you. I never could have got through this without you, those families will always be grateful. And he said, no, thank you. This is what I'm called to do. This, this, this is my ministry. This is, this is what I'm trained to do. And so thank you for the opportunity to serve. And I said, wow, that really blew me away. Uh, and it still sticks, sticks with me. Uh, mm-hmm. Here it is almost, uh, you know, what is it? 25 years later. Yeah. Yeah. That was a rough one. Most of my days were good. I had a lot of fun. Uh, but yeah, you got to deal with whatever you got to deal with. And uh, fortunately, you know, one thing that, that I learned very early on as mayor, and, and I thought, you know, I've been around the block a few times governmentally. I'd worked, you know, state, local, federal. Uh, but what you find out is what you don't know. And that's very important to bear in mind that as mayor, you don't know how to run an airport, but you want to get the best airport director you can and give them the resources that they need to support them. And that goes for wastewater treatment and we're putting out a fire, running a bus system, whatever it is. Uh, you don't want to become a micromanager. You want to be supportive and you want to help. And uh, and, I, and I had Gary Sparks, who's director of administrative services in the city government in and out. And uh, that allowed me to do a lot of things outside City Hall because the stuff that I really, you know, much of the stuff I look back on were like uh, the Lincoln Douglas debates on C SPAN. You know, that wasn't a city of Quincy thing necessarily, but it's something you could help lead outside of City Hall. The March for Jesus, bringing Jim's baseball back. Yeah, right. I hope you guys had the chance to experience Jim's oh, yeah. baseball back Absolutely. in the 90s when we were rocking. Oh, yeah. That was fun days. Yeah. Uh, yep. really good stuff, really good stuff. So yeah, I, you know, that's what I say. I, I had a great job and, and I probably would have run for a fourth term. Uh, but in, I would have been up, let's see in, uh, 2005 and in 2004, I got very sick. I had an ischemic mm. contestant and almost died. And mm. that was indicative of some other things that I wasn't aware of. And then by 2000, right. so I didn't run. And then 2006, I got diagnosed with liver disease, which uh, carried a high risk of liver cancer. And eventually mm. I developed a tumor. Mm. And that mm. sounds like the worst possible news you could ever deliver. But actually it was good news because it got me on the transplant list and I got a new liver and here I am today. Oh, wow. Very great. Wow. Yeah. And so let me put in a plug for your listeners. Uh, very easy to become an organ donor and you're not going to need them when you die. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. you know, my donor probably saved um, a dozen lives. So anybody that's, can that's be a incredible. hero. Yeah. All you got to do is sign up Secretary of State with your driver's license or go to lifegoeson.com. Well, I, I know all the Quincy region is is grateful that 
your candle wasn't cut at the wick there well, and you were able to keep doing what you. you've done. And, and, I, and it's sincere because, I mean, it's rare politically to see a, a person that has been so well received on both mm-hmm. sides yeah. of the aisle. Well, I appreciate that. You know, I when, when I took office, and obviously I'm a Democrat and proud of it, but I was very cognizant of what Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia once said, which was uh, there's no Democratic or Republican way to sweep the streets. You, mm-hmm. you know, you just do the job. And uh, there's really nothing liberal or conservative about public safety. You know, I took that as my number one priority. And we were, of course, you know, that we had some great programs at that time. President Clinton had the community policing that gave us a grant to expand the police department and hire more officers. And we did that with the fire department as well. We were lucky in the 90s, guys, because I could do all that and still reduce property taxes because that's when we had the retail explosion of first with Home Depot and then Walmart. And then we went across 72 to Prairie Crossings with Lowe's and so forth. And and, uh, the retail sales tax just drives city revenue to the extent that we were able to reduce the property taxes back in those days significantly. Uh, In other towns, you know, the same way, that's all changed now with Amazon. And uh, although the city is now getting the the sales tax, if you order something and it's delivered to you in Quincy, but what we're missing is in the old days, that guy used to get off the couch and drive here from Carthage or Keokuk and spend the money and we'd get the sales tax. But now he sits on the couch and orders it from Amazon. And my friend Mayor Nightingale in Carthage gets that uh, sales tax. So, uh, yeah, it's a whole That's new wild. landscape for retail out there. It's, I, I do want to go back. Travis is going to get another question for you here in a second. But uh, you, you mentioned that with your health problems that you, you kind of stepped back. Uh, sounds like you're feeling better now. So that's oh, good. I'm, I'm very fortunate. I was just dead blessing this morning. I get my blood tested. They sent it down to Barnes, which is where I had my transplant, where they, they take care of you basically for the rest of your life. I, I still go down for checkups. But, uh, yeah, new lease on life. And I have to uh, remember that and try to pay that forward every day. I have to appreciate that. I see my little granddaughter. Some of them weren't even born. It's been seven years since I got the transplant. I don't want to be too bold in saying this, but I mean, uh, you know, I, the city of Quincy, I think probably would, wouldn't mind seeing, seeing somebody back in that mayoral position too. Um, <laughs> if you're feeling you good. I have a hard time convincing my wife. Uh, <laughs> I bet. I you bet. know what? She's always reminding me now that I'm not the mayor anymore. You know, I'm telling you, I've got, <laughs> somebody comes up to me on the street with an issue or a problem or something. I'm trying to figure it out for him. Uh, but you know, it's just my habit. People walk in my office. I try to figure out how to help them. And my son says, damn, we don't do that. You know, you got to refer to somebody. <laughs> You're right. I'm just thinking, you know, gosh, somebody asked you for help. You should try to help them. Yeah. That's actually a great springboard to my question I have, Chuck. And, and that is say you're going to go eat at coach house on Sunday for breakfast and your, your table is at the back. How long does it take you to get from the door to your seat? Typically. Yeah. Do you just order a lunch at that point? Over the years, you know, my wife and kids, they, uh, you know, dad, just don't go to the KC barbecue. Uh, 
it, they want to, you know, they want to knock down the bottles with the baseball and I'm stuck, you know, I can't move for, um, usually it's, uh, for me, it's like, I go to the grocery store, but I like that, you know, I mean, I've had people yeah. come up to me and say, Hey, I've been watching you and all you have is like bread and milk and you've been in here for an hour. <laughs> and, and I said, yeah, but, you know, I don't run for office if you don't want to visit with people. And I want to hear about, you know, uh, Mrs. McGillicuddy's, uh, grandson that's, uh, you know, studying in Italy or whatever. Uh, yeah. uh so yeah, I, uh, I like to keep up and I got a big network out there and, uh, you know, the thing is, and, and my sons will call me out on this occasionally. There are people that, you know, they know me and I think I know them, but I'm not exactly yeah. sure. And, uh, my son Charles is really good at tipping me off, you know, giving me some little hints as things, but you don't want to, you know, you don't want to get too bold and just guess and be yeah, wrong right, there so right. they can usually tell when i'm trying to uh, fake it a little bit there but uh you know after a while usually if i get a couple of hints i can place you've lived so much of, of your life mayor and beyond and before kind of in the in as a quincy celebrity in a lot of ways what do you have any hobbies or anything that people wouldn't expect you to be like a fan of that really shocks people are you just so busy you're like hobbies please i mean I'm, no i i uh, i have hobbies i uh of course you know my number one role nowadays is opa i am uh, right. a, a grandfather and i'm Opa. my wife is oma and uh, that's that's the best gig ever but yeah i'm a very avid golfer sports ah. fan in general but golfer in particular and uh and that's been wonderful because my son's played it's just been you know now i can play with my with my grandkids uh but i'm also a big history buff and uh uh avid reader so uh yeah i'm i keep up with i'm involved with all the local history groups particularly uh our lincoln legacy group but uh, after leaving office i've had some wonderful opportunities senator durbin put me on the Abraham Lincoln Bicentennial Foundation, which uh, during the Lincoln Bicentennial, they issued commemorative coins. And so they had millions of dollars in proceeds from those coin sales. And we got to give that money away to organizations all over the country that were doing programs to enhance Lincoln's legacy. And uh, when you give Ford's Theater a grant they like to invite you to ford's theater and you get to go up into the box and you get to go see all the stuff behind it. oh i mean it's been for me to uh sit at the table at the lincoln cottage where he wrote the uh, emancipation proclamation i mean you know uh i've okay. yeah you know and they say you know like i'm in the library of congress and the guy's got the white gloves on he says now this is the bible that lincoln took the oath of office on in 1861, which Obama used, uh, right. yeah, in 2009. And of course, you can't touch it, but this is about, so we, we filed, but of course I reach out and I had to touch it. You know, I mean, <laughs> come on, how am I going to resist that? Seize uh, the day. Yeah. But anyway, I've got to go to just about every Lincoln venue. Uh, there is all the debate sites, the birthplace, every place. And, uh, you know, the thing when you study Lincoln, is that the more you study the man, and there's 16,000 books written about Abraham Lincoln, but the more you grow to admire him, even even deeper. Uh, totally agree. Yeah, and just, you know, what a great writer and how eloquent, what a great man of letters. So, uh, yeah, I've really enjoyed it. And, and being on this foundation board, 
uh, all the other, you see, everyone's somebody from Illinois, and, and we got our share of grants as a result. But but the other uh, folks were, were like Edna uh, Medford, who's a wonderful historian, uh, Harold Holzer, probably the most prominent Lincoln historian. He was our chairman. Uh, Orville Vernon Burton, a lot of just wonderful people. I've been, you know, I grew up reading all their stuff. Uh, and then there's me. Chopped liver. What you know? But, uh, <laughs> well, no, I not quite. Go, I'm just along for the ride. Uh, no. But anyway, I've had yeah, I've had some you know post mayoral gigs. I was chairman two terms as chairman of the Illinois State Board of Elections, which was a huge you know I I got the inside look at history. The you know when people say uh, oh that was a hoax that the uh, Russians interfered in the 2016 election. Hey, you're looking at a guy. We were hacked. I was chairman of the State Board of Elections July 2016 when we were hacked. And I can give you the name of the GUR colonel that hacked us. He's been indicted by Robert Mueller. Wow. You know, I've been to Washington and talked to the FBI and the whole deal. I mean, there is no doubt in my mind about Russian interference. And because of that, between 2016 and November election of 2020, Myself and the vice chairman, uh, who's Republican, everything is bipartisan with the Board of Elections. We doled out about $30 million to local counties. We did a risk assessment of all 102 counties in Illinois and the six independent uh, electoral boards. And there was a lot of risk. And so uh, they all applied for whatever grant they needed to, to uh, you know, some of these small counties just uh, didn't have the resources. And so we funded and we also did something. We built the Illinois Century Network. People think that somebody could hack the election results from Russia or something. The Internet is not involved in the conduct of the election. OK, you go to St. Peter's Jam or where Knights of Columbus, whatever, cast your vote. They're going to count that vote there. They're going to tabulate the vote by mail there. They're going to post it on the wall of the gym there before they drive it down to the courthouse. You know, the, the machine there is just like the machine that reads a multiple choice test. That's all right. it is. It's just a reader. And then those results go on this Illinois Century Network, which is a dedicated line that we have built from, in our case, Quincy to Springfield. But it's connected all over the state of Illinois and it's impenetrable. So we have really hardened our election security. And, uh, yeah, I was just very proud of the effort we had in uh, 2020 because we we're dealing with the pandemic. So we had right. to increase the early vote and the vote by mail, and yet, uh, you know, we had to we had to be able to conduct safely an election on election day, and, and it was great to have the the guard and all the help we had. One of the things that uh, you mentioned going to Lincoln, before, we have one last little section for you. We're going to get to it in a second, but it's something uh, I think it really works well with what when you go and talking about Lincoln, because one of the books I'm reading right now is called Team of Rivals. Oh, um, yeah. Talking Great about book. Lincoln. Yeah. Talking about how he worked with uh, worked both sides of the aisle and all that. When, you know, for Travis and I, we're growing up high school and in, in, in that time period when you're in office. And to me personally, it really. I, I wasn't even aware that there was partisan involvement in city council and city and government. And there shouldn't be. There because, shouldn't. because, and I agree, but I, but I do that because I think that you did such an amazing job of bringing both sides together in the city yes. that you didn't even notice that there was partisan politics involved. So I just wanted to give you a kudos well, for that because that was a very amazing thank thing. You, Chris. Because, you know, when I see these votes that, uh, 
the mayor has to break the tie at 7-7. Uh, I never voted. We never had 7-7. If we didn't have 10 or 12 votes, then we weren't ready to vote. You know, we wanted to get a consensus. And I, and I appreciate uh, your comments, but I have to give credit, too, to the Republicans that I served with because guys like Rick Smith and Ron Froman and Dave Hummel uh, elected as Republicans, but they were just there to do the right thing for the city. Yeah. And sometimes it was their idea that, that I got behind. And other times right. it was, you know, them getting behind my idea, you know, creating a planning department, which is, you know, wow, that's done. Uh, I could talk all day about the positive results that Bevelheimer's been able to achieve for Quincy. But anyway, yeah, we had, and they took some heat from more partisan Republicans. You're voting with Schultz all the time. I said, no, it's not. We're together because we think it's the right thing for Quincy. And that's why I propose that we go to a nonpartisan form of government. We are one of the last, you know, it's like East St. Louis and Cairo. I mean, even Chicago doesn't vote Democratic versus Republican for mayor anymore. Sure, there's a lot of politics involved. Springfield doesn't do it, but we still do it. And, and I that? think it's it's inhibited uh, good candidates. You know, I've tried to recruit people to run for alderman you know i don't want to be you know then i go to go with all the party fundraisers endorse the other candidates and all that and you know you look at the school board the park board they don't run as a political party they don't have to raise any money so they're not beholden to anybody now these candidates have you know the party gave them a check and so you know they're gonna have to toe the line it's not good uh and and they wouldn't this particular city council uh I went there with the League of Women Voters, and all we asked was put it on the ballot. Of course, they pass overwhelmingly by like 75% every town that's done this. But uh, put it on the ballot, let the people of Quincy decide if we want a partisan or nonpartisan form of government. I think we would recruit a higher caliber uh, for our city council, and uh, I think there's some other things. We, you don't need to meet every Monday night. You can create a consent agenda. There's some other things that could be done. I've had some people suggest we don't pay city council because, you know, again, if you run for school board, you're not going to get paid. The only reason you're running is because you want to improve education in Quincy. Yeah, there's a lot to be said. And to me personally, in my opinion, especially if you have, since you do have uh, two parties involved in city politics in the city of Quincy, um, and going back to, to your time frame, I don't, and this may be the wrong thing to say, but I don't think there's anything more patriotic than when you see it at a local level or a federal level, when both parties, they see the better good of the situation. And they see that that's something that you need to do. It's not no longer, it's, you know, partisan right. politics. It's about what's best for the country. And I, unfortunately, and again, I don't want to get on a soapbox, but it feels like we're getting too far away from that. You don't see that yeah. at all anymore. Senator Simon was a great, uh, example of that. One of his best friends, in fact, I did a podcast on this uh, through Rob uh, Mellon and the Historical Society. Uh, when Paul Simon brought Barry Goldwater to Bowen, Illinois, population 250. But I remember he, that uh, one. You know, arch conservative, Paul Simon, very progressive, but they both were for a balanced budget amendment. And, uh, you know, they were conservative fiscally. And they, Paul thought, well, just raise taxes on corporations to spend the, uh, the money. And, and Barry thought, don't spend the money. But at least they could agree that we need an amendment and we couldn't push this debt off on future generations. Uh, but, yeah, you don't you don't find that kind of consensus now. You can't get one person to cross the line. And that's too bad. And we had a big tradition of that in Illinois, not just with Paul Simon. Ray LaHood was a, a great example of a Republican 
uh, well respected by the Democrats and, and very effective as a result. I think the the public would be more supportive of political leaders if that was the case where they would see, you know, there's some instances where you do need to cross yes. that aisle and, and do something. But if it's uh, supporting Amtrak or our airport, yeah. we're going to be for that. Exactly. All right, Chuck, we got to lighten things up before we wrap up. We All usually right. do this for our Patreon episodes, but since we're starting this new people episode, we're going to throw this in there. We're going to do some lightning round questions. Okay. <laughs> oh, boy. And these are Quincy eccentric questions for you. So just throw out the first thing you think of. If, if you got it, maybe a couple and you don't want to be biased, you're more than welcome to do that. But we're going to here. Are you ready for this first I'm question? Ready. All right. And since you're not running for office right now, you don't have to worry about offending anybody. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> All right, here he goes. First question: Favorite pizza place in Quincy? I would have, I'd go with Jim City. I think. Yeah, there it is. Yeah, it's <laughs> a good one. I wouldn't want to get in trouble with Rod and Jeff. But <laughs> really, my wife, who's more of a pizza, she would say that the Jeff special is the oh, number yeah. one pizza in Quincy. Yeah. Yep. Epic. My yeah. wife and your wife would agree on that. Yeah. Uh, number two. So let's go past the pizza. Favorite food item in Quincy. That's a Quincy specific. I'd probably go with the lattice fries because I have some history on that. I think I may have done the podcast. Yeah. I was involved in the litigation that established that lattice fries were basically invented in Quincy, Illinois. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, it's funny. A side story real quick for you, Chuck. We were going to do a lattice fries episode. (laughs) <laughs> and the week after you guys the did week it after we were <laughs> oh, putting no. it together and then and then you and rob actually we did the episode you? and we're like we'll leave that yep. till later down the road now <laughs> it was super interesting though yeah, it, it, it is interesting go check that because out. they looked elsewhere i mean they found some in kentucky and ohio but they didn't go back to the 1920s like they did in quincy yeah the the, cool. the the nut of it was this guy got the patent in 1980 so all we had to prove was that they were around it wasn't unique when the patent was issued which means the patent's no good so i you know i was bringing in menus from the 1920s oh wow lattice <laughs> fries that's so, so wild nickel <laughs> were you ever more hungry in any litigation than doing never, something like that <laughs> all right uh next one this is going a little bit broader stroke but your favorite sports team in quincy Oh, in general, it could be pro. Well, or... I'm, a, I'm a Cardinal baseball fan. You know, at my age, you're looking at a guy that grew up with Stan Musial as the main, who, when I, I had a chance through my Clinton contacts to be at the welcoming ceremony in the uh, Air Force hangar at Lambert Field for uh, Pope John Paul. And uh, I met Stan Musial that day. Stan Musial was one of the major backers of his visit, being a, you know, a Polish Catholic himself. And, uh, yeah, so, you know, like I told my dad later that day, I, you know, I met this uh, awesome Polish legend and uh, also the Pope, both, you know, (laughs) you know, it's kind of hard to to understand a man, but I'll tell you what, Pope John Paul, I was right next to him because my friend was in charge of the visit, putting it on. He was the lead advance person. So he told me what was going to happen. And at the end, where they were going to go. So it's kind of like being a golf tournament. You could either be 10 deep on the rope line or you could know where they're going to the next hole and they're going to walk right past you. So I got over on the side and uh, there was a lady with a child in a wheelchair. And uh, I said, man, you know, I kind of motioned. I said, he's going to walk right past you. And of course I did that. 
Chris and Travis because I'm such a nice guy. But I also knew the Pope's going to go right up to that child, <laughs> and he That's did. Cool. He went right to that child, right next. He stand right next to me, blessing his wow. child. And I'll tell you what, he had some mojo. I mean, there was some definitely had, had a feel uh, there, right? And yeah. I, I've also seen Pope Benedict did not get the vibe there, but I was. Uh, in D.C. with my sister and my oldest sister Ann, is a uh, school sister in Notre Dame and an activist in D.C. for the uh, Catholic agenda, so to speak. Anyway, we were together when uh, Pope Francis was there, and he had he had some definite charisma too. Wow. Yeah, so I've gotten three three popes in my life. That's impressive. impressive. That's very impressive. Uh, two more questions for you here. Uh, favorite Quincy events, past or present? Well, let's think. Uh, I love all Quincy events, as you know. You know. Okay, uh, checking the political I, box. Yeah, there's the, uh, there's yeah, that right. checkbox. <laughs> <laughs> I would think. I really look back nostalgically on those early days of Jim's baseball as being awesome, but also. Yeah. Um, the Lincoln Douglas debate with C-SPAN and, and we were the first city to agree to it. And Brian Lamb uh, was just a wonderful guy to work with. And uh, it was really a special day in Quincy. So that might be my, my favorite event, but I'll probably make it to the St. Francis picnic this weekend. Yeah. So. Casey's coming go. up around the corner. Yeah. That's yeah, right. That fun stuff. Yeah. Uh, that's one thing you got to love about Quincy there. You, you got your staple events, you know, you're going to get to, unless you got some crazy COVID stuff going on, you're going to have these events that you yeah, can always get hopefully to. Hopefully we'll all be okay outside. All right. Last one for you. And I, this one's going to, you might have to put your thinking cap on a little bit for you, but if you were to pick a completely different career, what would that be? I think it would probably be an education and, and something to do with history and government. Uh, and I may do some more. I taught a, a class uh, last uh, semester at John Wood. It was a community enrichment on the history of Adams County. But uh, I'd love to teach like a state and local government class. But it's got to be kind of at the right time under the right circumstances. But in, in the past, I've taught it at Culver Stockton and uh, at QU. And, and right now I'm on the board at Blessing Raymond and at Culverstock and so I'm and I'm a little bit involved at St. Peter's as well with our STEM lab. So I think it would probably be something in education and probably a history professor. Uh, you know, being on the board at Culver, I know that when we have an opening, you get a hundred applications. It's yeah, it's <laughs> tough out there. But they're, they're, you know, I I just uh, I love history and I tell kids, you know, like like my son Jake, who's a lawyer, he majored in history because you're not going to learn anything as an undergrad, it's going to help you in law school anyway, other than how to express yourself, be concise, be coherent. How do you do that? Read. So what do you want to read? Read something you're interested in. Yeah, and with me, it's been history. There. Yeah. yeah. We're, we're with you totally on that boat. Uh, well, uh, uh, Chuck, this, uh, I, I think I'm speaking for both Travis and I, when we say this has been an amazing opportunity to talk with you and we are so hoping that we can bring you back in the future. Absolutely. And likewise for me, I've really enjoyed it. And you guys definitely uh, understand Quincy and the fact that we are the center of the universe and all roads lead to Quincy. <laughs> <laughs> well put. I, I neglected to ask this question. I'll get this in real quick here. Is there a book in the future, Chuck? Yeah. You have so many stories. I've got some good ones. And, you know, I, I was thinking about a list of interesting people that I've crossed paths with, you know, uh, I would read that book. I would too. Well, I would read that book. <laughs> and even if I just did vignettes on, 
you know, uh, uh, like I had a wonderful encounter with Muhammad Ali. Could you imagine wow. anybody else that you'd want to meet other than, and, you know, I've met presidents. I, I spent, uh, you know, when, when Clinton came to Quincy, I was, I was on Air Force One. Well, I was back in the, uh, you know, I'd describe it as kind of like a nice first class section of a plane with the rest of the congressional delegation. But then this young Air Force officer comes up and says, uh, Mayor, the president would uh, like to visit with you, follow me. And I got to go to the forward cabin. Wow. And then Clinton says the magic words, uh, hey, I want to know everything about Quincy and Adams County, where I'm going, whatever. Well, boom, I start with John Quincy <laughs> Adams and City of Bradley, <laughs> Underground Railroad, nice. Father told me, you know, the whole thing. Uh, and two hours later, here we are. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, that was a um, really literally a once in a lifetime experience. Do you ever have moments, especially like, you know, you're walking up to see the president in air force one. You, do you ever have these moments where you're just like, is this really happening? <laughs> well, my brother thinks I'm something of a forest gump, you know, because I, uh, <laughs> I tend to end up in the front row somehow. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I've been, I'm lucky. I'm just a lucky guy. Oh, that's great. Uh, no doubt about it. Well, and, and I, I, you did some things great. that have been very great uh, to get you. I, I'm not sure it's necessarily luck, Chuck. There may be some skill behind that as well. So, but I don't know if I could do the book. But I, you know, I would like to sit down with a tape recorder and talk about just different people uh, that have come to Quincy or that I've met in my travels, and uh, really, you know, some extraordinary. And some of them have been presidents and popes. Uh, you know, one of the most interesting religious leaders, Gordon B. Hinckley who was the president of the Church of Latter-day Saints, who uh, I got to spend some time with uh, and came to Quincy and, and uh, gave us a very nice contribution to our community foundation because they were the proceeds of the concert. He brought the Mormon Tabernacle Choir to Quincy as an expression of gratitude. Tremendous. I want to talk about Brigham, Brigham Young's father, who's buried here in town. Samuel so, Young is buried in Madison Park. Yep. Yeah, that's interesting. I only learned about that recently. Lots of interesting little stories there. Well, the Latter-day Saints, they know their own genealogy, and they uh, revere Quincy as a city of refuge. Absolutely. Wow. Well, again, Chuck, amazing. Thank uh, we, you, guys. And thanks yes. for doing this. This is a great – you've got me hooked on your podcast, man. Well, that's great. <laughs> we appreciate, we appreciate that. it. We're, we're hopefully have you back for another one. Uh, Travis, before we wrap up – yeah, before we wrap up, we missed anything? No, Chuck, you, th thank you so much for making time. I know you're a busy guy. And, uh, you know, for you to take the time out and talk to little schmucks like us, hey. we, we appreciate it, man. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. Thank you, guys. Thank you. And we'll be back after this on Wild Quincy. You say you're getting tired of lettuce and tomato hamburgers in this town that don't quite make it? Yeah! You say that just once you'd like your hamburger hot and your lettuce and tomato cool and crisp all at the same time? Yeah! Well, I say you got it. I'm talking McDonald's new lettuce and tomato hamburger, the McDLT. I'm talking quarter pound of beef on the hot, hot side. And the hot stays hot. The new McDLT. Hot, hot. Crisp lettuce and tomato on the cool, cool side. And the cool. Stays cool. The new McDLT. Cool crisp. The beef stays hot. The cool stays crisp. Put it together, you can't resist. The hottest taste. The coolest dish. Keep the hot, hot. Keep the cool, cool. McDLT. McDLT. Hot, beefy, McD. Cool crisp LT. McD. LT. It's 
time. Hot beefy McTee for the great taste. Cool crisp LT of McDonald's. Could be the best tasting lettuce and tomato hamburger ever. New McTee LT. Well, we're back into the blasts from the past again. National commercials with a little bit of local impact. We're talking about the McDLT, Travis. Uh, did you ever have one of those? I don't think I ever had it when I was more in the ballpark of, uh, let's see, how old would we be in the 90s? We would have been in the Happy Meal ballpark. I was going to say, I was just time. wondering if we were more concerned about the Happy Meal game than... Do you remember, do you remember having the huge... I had a huge cardboard box full, literally full of toys from McDonald's. Did you ever have a collection? I Not only did I have a collection, but I, I've recently gone down a deep dive recounting how cool the toys used to be to my kids. And oh, yeah. I think the upper echelon for me would be the McDonald's Transformer toys. They're, oh, yeah. Remember the, the, the uh, it was like a, all the little food items became little robots, guys. I don't think oh, they yeah. were, I don't think they might, they might not have been officially licensed transforming. Transformers, but uh, still, that in my head, that was like uh, the top of the top of the toys. Here's your little side story for you, real quick. Uh, clean out parents' house yeah. a few years ago, uh, and I had this thought in the back of my mind: like, I know that box has got to be somewhere. And you know, really, if you think about it, if you had hundreds of toys from like the 80s and 90s that were McDonald's toys, yeah. I think there would be some value in those today. Oh, absolutely. Couldn't find the box. No idea where it went. Such so a cruel fate. A cruel fate. Yeah, right? So the McDLT. Sure What's the story yeah. on this thing? So a couple things. Obviously, the McDLT uh, ironically started in, uh, I shouldn't say ironically, but it started in, in back in the 80s. To be specific, I believe it was 1984 when it started. And really, if you guys aren't familiar with this, they had this concept of, well, you know what would be great is if you had cold like lettuce and tomato and in a hot sandwich. So they decided they were going to make a styrofoam container. The one side had the bottom of the bun with the hamburger and just the hamburger. And then the other side actually had the lettuce, tomato, the top of the bun, and the cheese. The cheese stayed cold. Say what you will. This, this is innovative thinking. I like this. This brings up a great question, though. Yeah. Cold cheese or warm cheese? I like melted cheese on my cheeseburger. You know, that's interesting. I, I, I'm looking at I'm looking at the pictures of the McDLT packaging right now, and the packaging one one photo itself is interesting. But I was more curious about the open package with the the product inside, and mm -hmm. they they have the heel of the bun, like you said, the patty on the on the right, and on the top of the other side, the tomatoes, lettuce. Oh, I'm sorry, the tomatoes, then the cheese, then the lettuce, then the top of the bun. I think it would have been better if they had the cheese on top, Chris, of that. Cause when like you, next to the top of the bun? On, on, no, I think on top of the tomato. So when you oh, naturally right. flipped it over on top of the other side, that, yep. that cold cheese, that cold, cold cheese is going to make that hot, hot patty. And it's going to be sweet, melty deliciousness. Yeah, I mean, a, a cheeseburger is not a cheeseburger without melted cheese on it. I'm just saying. Well, I think you got two two schools of thoughts. I think you got the like this like Subway crowd, the su the sub, sub sandwich crowd that likes a cold yeah. sub and the cheese. Yeah. And then you got the like I'm in your boat. I like a good melted cheese, but yeah. uh, it's innovative thinking. Innovative thinking at McDonald's here. It didn't last though. What happened to it? Yeah, so, and that's what I had to look up. It, it is innovative, but then on the other side, it's like you know what I. I bought this cheeseburger. I kind of want it already completed. That's the I don't same really reason want to put I don't order fajitas. 
Oh, there you go. That's right. So, uh, unfortunately, it, it, it's weird, and I don't think this would be the legitimate reason. I guess I get it. But it actually went on for six years until they uh, canceled or got rid of it. And the reasoning, and multiple sources say the reason that McDonald's got rid of this was because of the packaging itself being a styrofoam package. They were getting away from styrofoam. Polystyrene packaging, just nailing the coffin on this thing, huh? So I don't necessarily agree with that. I think, honestly, uh, uh, McDonald's, you got to think it's... They're making millions and millions of cheeseburgers every day in the country. So to think of how much packaging has to be involved with that and have a special package just for the purpose of this one sandwich, I think that that would have to be a cost indicator to McDonald's that probably it costs too much to just make this one package for this one specific type of food. So I think, that'd be my I, guess. I think it was a whole kind of environmental movement altogether because everything used to be that polystyrene as far as packaging goes back in the day if it wasn't just wrapped in paper like a cheeseburger but all the the big sandwiches all had that polystyrene which i'm sure there was a huge fuss on the you know the environmental side and uh, i think that was probably more to blame it was just that pressure that social pressure um but uh either way how come they couldn't bring this back with just different packaging like they had today the poly whatever you call the foam packaging it's just i think that was how you kept it cold i don't think you can go oh, to a go to a uh, cardboard or some sort of recycled paper material and make it stay cold as it would in that in that packaging bs chris i'm calling bs on this we can make square watermelons we can make peaches in the shape of things surely mcdonald's you can get your scientists at work a couple things. Uh, first of all, Jason Alexandra, Alexander, Alexander, George, yeah. come on, George uh, Costanza. Let's yeah, get George. Uh, he did. He, he that was a voice for it. It's so funny. Maybe if I remember, I'll post it on our Facebook page. Uh, looks has hair, um, <laughs> so that's something. But uh, I want to talk. It kind of led me down a road. And I kind of want to hit this up. I think this is a good spot to do it. I know we're in supersized mode. It's been a while, but you got a few extra minutes to work here. Things that uh, didn't work at McDonald's besides the McDLT. Okay. Are you ready for this? Bring it on. What do we got? Pizza. Pizza. McDonald's had pizza. I don't remember that. Yep. Okay. Yeah. According to McDonald's, uh, it was uh, it was only available after four p.m. Uh, that didn't seem like it lasted too long. They also had this thing, which is really cool. In the 1960s, McDonald's founder, Ray Kroc, decided that he needed an option for the Lent, for Catholics and Lent season. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so you obviously can't eat meat on Fridays, all this stuff. So he came out with this idea of what they called the Hula Burger. Hula Burger. Well, tell me more. It actually was a burger with two slices of cheese and a literally a slice of pineapple. Oh, hold on. It was, wait, so bun, cheese, and pineapple? Bun, cheese, pineapple, cheese, bread. Yeah. Uh, Unfortunately, it didn't last very long at all because uh, just a a little bit later, uh, one of the McDonald's franchise owners came up with the filet fish idea, so that replaced uh, the hula Is it weird to you that the first thought was pineapple and not fish? It's like, you know, you got fish, a tradition yeah. Catholicism on I don't Fridays know. for years. And then McDonald's guy's like, you know what? Now we're going to do pineapple. That seems like a better yeah. choice. Mm. We got to respect the Hawaiian I bet, tradition. I bet, I bet he's not working there anymore, Chris. Uh, that was Ray Kroc, the founder okay. of McDonald's well, that came up with that. Technically, he is <laughs> he isn't. You're right. There. You're technically right. I'm not wrong. Uh, real quick, uh, they had a hot dog at one point in time. The McCrab. Uh, McCrab sandwich was made with uh, crab cakes. Uh, mixed spaghetti. Ooh. 
Uh, that I was back think, in the I 70s. I don't think you touch spaghetti as a fast food place unless you're like uh, Italian theme. Fazoli's. Yeah, unless yeah. that's your game. But fast food yeah. and spaghetti, it, you should not be able to order a cheeseburger at the same place you order spaghetti. That just seems weird to me. So this one I dig. Uh, they had a thing called onion nuggets. Oh, that could it be was good. a deep that fried nu- uh, onion. It was kind of as an alternative to French fries. I think I would. I'd be game for that. It was a nineteen. That's just onion rings. It. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so like, it, why, yeah. Why duh. would you just call it onion rings? Yeah. Well, that's that's the, not the McDonald's Mc, way. McOnion is that what they called it? McOnions. Yeah. A uh, couple here. Uh, Arch Deluxe. Remember those? I uh, do that was uh, that. that was a thing. Yeah. They uh, made a brief return in 2018, but then went away again. They had an Angus burger, but it was way too expensive. Uh, and then there's a bunch more. We're gonna hit up the rest of these on Patreon because there's like still like ten more like failures at McDonald's, which is pretty interesting. Uh, we'll hit all those we up. We have coming so up a much later to on. talk about. Yeah. And you, Come on, guys. You're missing out on this this gold, this solid gold. If you're not on Patreon. I do want to make a point real quick. It's for we do. Obviously, there is levels of Patreon for money. And, but in all honesty, we don't really care about that. All we care about is there's there's all these episodes out there. We have a fun time. Come check it out. Uh, we could care less about the money. We actually just enjoy having the interaction with the Chris. With we let our hair so. down. We get comfy. Yeah, we have some real some real chit chat. Some real fun yeah. chit chat. We we don't know where we're going when we start. It's exciting. Exactly. It is. It is. Yeah. Uh, totally. We usually start with when we, before we start recording a Patreon episode. We go. I have nothing to talk about, and then it turns into a forty-five minute conversation. We just so go and we just find our way. We're like we're like bushwhackers. We're out there just a bushwhacking <laughs> with with words. Travis, I think it's time to bring in the golden pipes. Sound good? Hit that button. And now it's time for words of wisdom from Adams County. All right, Travis, it's time to turn to the wits and wisdom of our forefathers and foremothers of Adams County. Never disappoints. What do we have this week? Never disappoints. We're going to turn, of course, as we've mentioned a few times, we have a list of uh, that we put on Facebook asking for some numbers. This week, we're going to turn to a selection by Mary Smith, and I'm going to say Lenan, L-E-N-A-N-E. Sounds good to uh, me. It was her name. Thank you, Mary. Uh, for your apologies submission. if she if I said that incorrectly. But we're going to turn to the number 1142, which kind of changes things up from our last few. Uh, and we're going to talk about fruits and berries. Fruits and berries. And berries. Those are not the section. same thing. They're not. Uh, so 1142 oh. is this. A fruit tree will die if touched by a menstruating woman. Words of wisdom from Adams County. Oh, God. Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> That's, huh. You gotta love our forefathers and foremothers. There's you wisdom know, and wit, people. It's a different time. It was a different time. <laughs> there wasn't quite as much understanding. You know what? Touch all the trees you want, whatever you want. I it's not my role to judge. It feels like every time we do these, we go down a very awkward hole of a uh, rabbit hole there of things. Um, so and speaking of that in rabbit holes, we did send out a question a few weeks ago, and I believe it was I, uh, two, two episodes ago. I can't remember what episode that was at this point in time. We talked about this whole thing about sex organ and uh, all this. We couldn't figure out what the heck it meant. Sign of the sex organ, I think. 
But we got some help from from some of you guys out there listening. Travis, you got some details on that? Yeah, I believe was I believe in I believe this is the one that was a baby should be weaned when the sign is below the sex organ. I believe that was twenty six fifty five in the old wisdom and wit uh, numbers. Yeah, we had two people. It was it was quiet. For, there were crickets for about a week and a half, two weeks, Chris, and then the triumphant response of uh, both Jordan Losher and Julie Terstrip came and brought the A game on explaining what the heck was going on with that. It was about weaning babies and it was all about astrological signs, phases of the moon. Um, you know, uh, she, uh, Julie referenced, uh, they're referencing signs of the moon in the almanac. Her mom always told her to wean baby calves when in the right side of the moon. So they are not constantly bowling or bowling at night uh, for their mothers. And Jordan also submitted things a few numbers up and down. He actually took a screenshot of the, I'm guessing an online version of that book, Chris. And there is a little bit more context down the road, down the page aways where it talks more about the baby and um, oh. decline of the moon and other things. So, so it was secretly kind of hidden in there, but we, you know, we're not, we, we're not thorough. We just go, we're like snipers when it comes to this stuff. We go in there, we find the, the number, we hit it. And then we leave it to your imagination. Exactly right. I love how you put so that. So thank Travis. you guys for filling us in. It was utter confusion. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Jordan, for that lovely pun. But now we we know. Now we are informed. We now we have the power. And what is power? Knowledge. Knowledge is power. <laughs> And we have it. Chris, what else? Get me out of this loop. We have it. Well, uh, yeah, we appreciate that. We're going to have to put out another one uh, pretty soon to get some more numbers because uh, we, some the well's drying up a little bit on those. So we'll have to see what else we got before we put out some more. Could we possibly get an answer to the question of the day, Chris? Sure, let's do that. So the question of the day, nice segue, Travis, was this. Uh, let me get to it. Uh, the Fujita scale measures the strength of a tornado by the damage it causes. In Adams County, what was the highest Fujita rated tornado? F1, F2, F3, or F4? Travis, your thoughts? I'm going F4. Going all the way to the top. I'm going to start at the top. Yeah. Well, Travis, I believe you have two weeks of being correct. Uh, that is the winner, correct winner, answer. Pineapple sandwich dinner. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. Tell me about uh, it. Ironically, the very first tornado ever recorded in Adams County was also the strongest tornado ever recorded in Adams County. It was an F4. It happened March 10th of 1876. A little detail here for you. Tornado touched down in Monroe County and moved through Rawls and Marion County in Missouri before moving into Adams County. The tornado crossed the Mississippi River at McDonald's Island, which is about five miles north of Hannibal. A total of 14 people were killed and 40 people injured. Wow. In this F4 tornado. What year, what year was that again? 1876. Oh, wow. Okay. So that didn't make it into Quincy then, right? It didn't. It was just south of Quincy. But we're going to talk about a tornado in next week's episode that did oh, hit the, the big city of one. Quincy. The legendary tornado. Tell us a little about that. Tease it a bit, Chris. 1945. It happened in April, and it uh, did some destruction. It was uh, actually over $2.2 million, and that is in 1945 money destruction. You would have thunk that Quincy was on a Girls Gone Wild video because so many buildings were topless when that thing was done. It made a lot of oh, destruction, a little teaser there. Chris is going to have all the dirty details for you 
next week. And not only are we going to talk about the details of the tornado itself, but we're also going to dig into just the idea of uh, some misconceptions of tornadoes. Because uh, even what you just heard, I believe Chuck was talking about this earlier, about uh, how tornadoes may be jumping, oh, right, right, right. Uh, jumping the city. We're going to dig into those details and uh, talk about some of those myths and, and, and knowledge, some of those uh, for the Quincy area. So super excited. It's right up my alley, Travis. And uh, speaking of right up the alley, is there anything that we're missing uh, that's right up your alley. No, I think uh, I'm anxious to hear what Torna- Tornado Alley has in store next week. I want to thank Chuck Schultz again. Thank you, Chuck. He was a great guest. Boy, if I, I wish I had a fragment of as many stories as he has. He just <laughs> a wealth of interesting stuff. Thanks so much for listening. I think that's everything I have, Chris. Sounds good. For Travis Hoffman, I'm Chris Ketters. You've been listening to Wild Quincy. We'll catch you guys next time. Take care, everybody. Wild Quincy is released every other Tuesday and is produced by Chris Ketters and Travis Hoffman. Sound designed by Downdraft Sound and Editing and music by Travis Hoffman Music. I'm Bo Beecraft, and thanks for listening to Wild Quincy. Wild Quincy.